welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. My name is Dishagarna Jani. For today's episode, I sat down with Jessica White, Associate Professor in the School of Humanities and Languages and the School of Law at the University of New South Wales, to talk about her book, The Morals of the Market, Human Rights and the Rise of Neoliberalism, out now from Verso. Could you tell us a little bit about how this project came about? Yeah, well, it came about through work that I had been doing on human rights and on humanitarian intervention more specifically. And I became interested in a couple of things, one of which was the role of Michel Foucault in the early development of ideas of humanitarian intervention. And out of that, I became interested in the way that he talked about the relationship between forms of government and forms of what he called counterconducts, which emerged to contest forms of government from within the same elements. So making use of, for instance, ideas of liberal freedoms or various ideas that were part of a governmental rationality in order to contest it. But it struck me that at the same time that Foucault was working on this new politics of human rights and new interventionist politics, he was also writing about, in very prescient terms, the emergence of neoliberalism, but without ever really bringing these things together. And it struck me that there was a relationship between the neoliberalism that he was analysing and the forms of human rights politics that he was involved in at the time. So that was prior to this book, but it gave me a real interest in some of the political questions about how we understand the relationship between human rights and neoliberalism. And then much more recently, as I was writing and starting to work on these questions, there's obviously a historical debate about how we understand that relationship. And it seemed to me that the relationship between human rights and neoliberalism was sort of significantly closer than many in the sort of historical debate were recognising. And so that led me to a much more in-depth account and reading of neoliberal thinkers to try to understand how they themselves talked about and mobilised ideas of human rights. So you begin with talking about the Grenfell fire and you end with an episode in which human rights lawyer Philip Alston in 2015 made a call to treat, quote, extreme economic inequality as a cause of shame on the part of the international human rights movement. What do those things have to do with neoliberalism? Well, one of the obvious things is the question of economic inequality, which there has been lots of writing about the sort of extreme levels of inequality that exist in neoliberal societies and globally. Um, But the Grenfell Fire example in particular, I was really struck by because on the one hand, it was a real example of the forms of inequality that exist in when in the same borough you have extraordinary wealth up beside an apartment block that had been over a long period of time significantly neglected. Uh, But the example that I looked at was when uh, Jeremy Corbyn made a call in the wake of the Grenfell fire for using so-called land-banked investment properties, empty uh, apartment buildings and houses in the area to house survivors of the fires. And there was an article in the Times by Daniel Finkelstein where he made the argument that this was a reason that we need the Human Rights Act in order to protect 
the human rights of the absent property owners when the popular masses were against them. And so this was really striking to me, this kind of mobilisation of the language of human rights in order to protect not those who had just lost their homes, lost everything in many cases as a result of this devastating fire, but in fact to protect those who were the owners of empty investment properties from these people. So that was sort of one example to me of a sort of a neoliberal mobilisation of a rights discourse to preserve inequalities of wealth and of property. Then if we look at Philip Olston, he's been doing very interesting work uh, recently as the UN Special Rapporteur on um, extreme poverty and human rights. And the argument that he made in that piece was that mainstream human rights organisations have been very much unwilling to deal with questions of economic inequality and distribution more broadly, and that they have allowed significant levels of inequality to develop without really paying very much attention to them. And he argued at the time that this should be seen as a cause for shame for the human rights movement. And it struck me that this did not occur without a context and that what we needed to consider was how was it that these NGOs, which have really come to prominence in the same period that we've seen neoliberalism become hegemonic, um, to ask what was their relationship to this neoliberal paradigm in which they exist? And, and so you write then that, quote, human rights were not simply shaped by an underlying economic reality. They were a central component of the neoliberal attempt to inculcate the morals of the market. And that's you know one of the central claims that you make in the book. Um, could you spell out for us a little bit then what these so-called morals are and, and where they came from? Sure. Well, very specifically, the term the morals of the market I take from the Austrian neoliberal Friedrich Hayek, and he uses this term in the service of an argument that moral and uh, religious ideas can be quite determinate in the success or failure of what he terms civilizations. So what Hayek believes is that in order for a competitive market to function, we can't rely on sort of ideas of natural freedom or laissez-faire. What we actually need is a moral order and a legal order that is conducive to the functioning of that market. So for Hayek, the morals of the market were a set of moral sentiments which sanctified wealth accumulation, which sanctified and justified high levels of equality, which guided people to the belief that they needed to take responsibility for their own fates and they needed to exert themselves through the market in order to better themselves rather than, in his terms, blaming others for their failures. And so this was a set of morals that really prioritised individual self-interested action and familial support over and above any kind of collective establishment of ends. And what was really important about this idea of morality is that it drew on a sort of a stadial history for which societies evolve um, from what Hayek called sort of tribal societies or governed by what he termed the morals of the small band, by which he meant egalitarian forms of morality, which prioritised collective establishment of ends and forms of sharing and social existence 
So societies supposedly evolved from these kind of moral beliefs to the morals of the market. So there's very much a racialized conception whereby the morals of the market emerged in European commercial centres. They allowed those who adopted them to be more successful. And by successful, Hayek essentially meant to establish societies that were wealthier. And for him, interestingly, any form of egalitarianism in his own time was conceived as what he called a regression to suppressed primordial instincts. So he argued that all of Marxism, all of egalitarianism should be considered as the the eruption of these sort of tribal morals that we have to constantly fight against if we're to live in sort of wealthy and successful societies. So interestingly, at the level of human nature, rather than an argument that we are naturally competitive beings as humans, Hayek believed that because we had been socialised into egalitarian forms of sociality over millennia, that we always wanted to sort of slip back in his terms into forms of egalitarianism and collective solidarities and that what was necessary was to sort of constantly beat out of people this egalitarianism by inculcating the morals of the market in order to enable competitive market societies to function. Mm -hmm. And how then for Hayek and, and the other thinkers you talk about, how is that process of inculcation supposed to happen? Well, I mean, there are various things. It sort of operates across the entirety of society. So Hayek says things like no free society will ever progress unless parents are going to forbid their children from playing with children who have bad manners. So on the one hand, it works just at the level of sort of social norms and social pressures. And in this respect, Hayek in particular and various of the neoliberals break, particularly with John Stuart Mill, and argue that liberalism took a wrong turn when it began to consider social pressure and coercion as a limit on our freedom and actually that these forms of moral pressures are really essential to the establishment of a free society. Um, it also operates through the establishment of a legal order and one of the things that was really distinctive about neoliberalism was that we needed an effective legal order to ensure that a competitive market would function. But what I also look at obviously in the book is the role of human rights in NGOs in uh, promulgating a form of morality that is very conducive to and compatible with the liberal market order. Mm -hmm. and, and part of the historical argument you're making is that the emergence of neoliberalism and the emergence of human rights um, are what you call convergent and compatible. They work well together for the people who advocate them. Um, how, how, how does that happen? Well, the story that I trace in the book is not simply of these things sort of emerging ex nihilo in this compatible form. It's about a series of historical conflicts and struggles. So I really start the book in 1947 as the sort of the main period, which is when the neoliberal Montpelerin Society is founded by Hayek to re-establish liberalism and to break with laissez-faire. Uh, so that happens in 1947, but also you have the beginning of the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So I spend a lot of time on the drafting process, and I note that in that early stage, many 
many of the arguments that were being made during the drafting of the Universal Declaration were very much at odds with neoliberal perspectives of the period. And we need to remember that in 1947, these neoliberal thinkers were extremely marginal. I mean, they saw themselves as besieged by a dominant sort of welfareism, and as time went on, even more so by the rise of um, anti-colonial struggles and anti-colonial nationalism, and particularly actually anti-colonial forms of internationalism that attempted to reorganise global economic relations. So I trace these various disputes, but what I show is that by the 1970s, when a sort of a distinctive and powerful form of NGO-led human rights comes into being, that it actually draws quite heavily on a set of ideas that neoliberal thinkers had been developing for decades by that stage. Mm -hmm. So I guess, is this a story then of these things sort of brewing in the background, being uh, put forward by the set of thinkers, and then a, a particular, I guess, conjuncture in which they become institutionalized, become internationalized. Am I, am I understanding that right? Yeah. I, look, I think that the specific modes of transmission happen in different ways at different places. Um, to take one concrete example that I look at in the book, I look at the development of the humanitarian organisation Medicine Sans Frontières, and particularly at a think tank that it established or a foundation in the mid-80s called Liberty Sans Frontières. Now, this was established very explicitly to combat third worldism and demands for global economic redistribution that were influential at that time in the humanitarian and aid sector. And so Liberty Sans Frontières was developed to campaign against these ideas, to campaign quite explicitly against structural arguments about global economic inequality, and to argue that only liberal societies were capable of preserving rights. So this was a really interesting example where you had major figures associated with a very respected humanitarian NGO drawing directly on ideas that had been developed by neoliberal thinkers over decades and quite explicitly. So at the first uh, Liberty Sans Frontières conference on challenging third worldism, one of the key speakers was Lord Peter Bauer, who was the most um, important of the Montpelleron Society neoliberal development theorists. And he came and gave the kind of speech that he always gave about how we should oppose foreign aid because colonialism was not um, was not damaging to former colonies. In fact, it was a source of improvement that the West has nothing to be guilty of. A whole set of themes that had been very much stock in trade in neoliberal discourse for the last couple of decades, but to see them aired in a forum that was about humanitarianism and human rights was quite distinctive. And you had leading figures of MSF at the time very very much taking up this set of arguments and mobilising them against um, forms of third world solidarity and against other figures with both within France and internationally in support of liberal markets and liberal economic orders. So that's just one example of how these kind of convergences took place. Um, there were many different examples that took place in different ways at different periods, but I think it is significant that over a period of decades and decades, 
a whole number of thinkers associated with the Montpelerin Society had been reconceptualizing how we understand freedom, how we understand rights, how we understand the relationship between politics and markets, and that at a certain point these arguments developed and became much, much more influential outside strictly neoliberal circles. Mm -hmm. And especially because you're treating some episodes that um, are generally very well known, but the particular convergence you're talking about really isn't. Um, I'm really curious about how you went about reading some of these texts, reading some of these addresses, especially if this convergence is what you were after. Um, did this project change your practices of reading when it came to some of these thinkers, some of these types of texts, you know, your, your addresses, your reports, that kind of genre? Um, especially because this is a set of questions that I think you're, you're bringing to the fore in a way that has, has not really been done in typical sort of retellings of the 40s to the 70s or the 70s moment, what, you know, etc. Mm, thank you. That's a good question. Uh, maybe if I say something first about the kind of sources that I used. So on the one hand, the book uh, reads very closely a number of major neoliberal thinkers, Friedrich Hayek, uh, Ludwig von Mises, figures associated with the Austrian school, but also the German uh, auto-liberals, people like Wilhelm Röpke and Alexander Rusto and a whole number of other thinkers associated with the Montpelerin Society and a whole number of sort of lesser figures also. So I read their writings, um, but then I also do a lot of work on the drafting debates um, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and later NGO reports. And I also use the, the materials in the Montpelerin Society archives, many of which have not been previously published. Um, and I think that... What this did taken together was show me this very complex terrain where lots of the arguments in existing literature about how we relate human rights to neoliberalism sort of dissolved because what became clear was that there was not this single sphere called human rights that was one obvious defined thing and another single sphere called neoliberalism, most commonly understood as a simple economism that could then be related to each other. Instead, I found looking at the neoliberal thinkers that arguments about rights and liberty and freedom were all the way through these neoliberal texts and that they had to be read as political thinkers who had their own conception of human rights. And so this led me to particular questions. So I became particularly interested in the way that the neoliberal thinkers really came to prominence in contesting forms of anti-colonial um, arguments for wealth redistribution in particular. So that guided me when I went to the archives, for instance. I read all the papers about colonialism that were presented at Montpelerin Society conferences. I read all the papers about development. I read all those kind of papers that dealt with questions of international economic and political orders and particularly post-colonial 
political orders. And so this meant that I read materials that have never been published, have not, to my knowledge, been written about in many cases, and it gave me a very different perception of what neoliberal thinkers were trying to do. And one of the things that I think is really important about the arguments that I make in the book is that I really want to challenge this idea that neoliberalism was a sort of reductive economism or an attempt to subject all of life to an economic rationality. And I want to show that moral and political ideas were absolutely central to neoliberal thinking and that this idea of a moral order that would be conducive to a competitive market is itself a really central aspect of how we should understand neoliberalism. So neoliberalism is not the amoral economism that various people, including to a certain extent Foucault, saw it to be. It actually had a very strong moralism attached to it and that that's worthy of discussing in its own right. And once we recognise that, we recognise that it's not so much a question of how we relate neoliberalism to human rights as if these are self-evidently distinct discourses or self-evidently distinct movements. And we actually recognise that a set of ideas could travel back and forth from different figures and be used for different purposes. And that's what I became particularly interested in tracing. How did ideas that the neoliberal thinkers had been developing for going back to the sort of 40s and 50s, how did they end up getting taken up by quite distinct figures for quite other purposes decades later, in many cases without an awareness of where those ideas had been developed in the first place? Mm -hmm. And so if you're treating neoliberalism, and correct me if I'm wrong, as a term to describe an event or process as a historical phenomenon, um, as well as perhaps an analytic, a way to continue to think about the present and certain kinds of convergences. Um, or if, if perhaps if you're not doing that, then if people uh, generally who talk about the question use the term in both of these ways, how does your work help us parse then what is at times a kind of murky relationship between talking about it as something that happened or is happening um, and talking about neoliberalism as a as an analytic or a way to think about power today? Mm. Um, I'm not sure that I'm so interested in distinguishing those, um, what you describe as the analytic and the history. I guess what I am interested in is giving more specificity but also more um, providing a more sophisticated understanding of what we mean by neoliberalism by going back to the neoliberal texts, both in the sense of the the writings of major neoliberal thinkers and the sort of the ideological self-clarification that went on at the Montpellier societies when they were sort of talking amongst themselves, presenting papers to each other. So this gives us a sense of the kinds of ideas, the kinds of political projects that were um, that I think we can call neoliberal. And it's worth noting that in the early days, neoliberalism was an actor's category. These people talked about themselves as neoliberals. Milton Friedman has a very early paper from the, 
I think it's 1951, called Neoliberalism and Its Prospects, where he situates himself amongst the neoliberals and he says that the role of neoliberalism is to accept the sort of the classical liberal emphasis on the individual, but to replace the idea of laissez-faire with the goal of a competitive order. And I think that's a pretty good summary of what many of those people thought they were doing at the time and what I think that we can understand neoliberalism as a political project to be. But I also want to show that these ideas had influence and that they were drawn on by historical actors in a whole range of different contexts, whether that be Chile, whether that be French humanitarianism, um, whether that be the United Kingdom in the period of um, the Grenfell fire. And I don't want to say that these ideas sort of had this um, absolute capacity to translate themselves into reality. Obviously, there were numerous contradictions in the way that individual figures uh, drew on these ideas. There's the famous story about um, Margaret Thatcher supposedly being at a Tory party meeting and getting very frustrated by those of her colleagues who she thought were not online and pulling a copy of Hayek's Constitution of Liberty out of her bag, smashing it down on the table and saying, this is what we believe. Now, that's a nice kind of neat story and it captures some of the influence that these people did have on major political figures in the neoliberal period. But, of course, many of the figures that I talk about were not carrying copies of Hayek around in their handbags. Um, nonetheless, these ideas influenced them in a range of ways, sometimes unknowingly. And that's the, the interesting point that I want to sort of point to, that these weren't always cases of sort of complicity where people saw themselves as attempting to implement neoliberal projects, but that particular arguments that the neoliberals made about the nature of markets, the nature of civil societies became very influential. And one of the arguments that I'm particularly interested in in the book is the way that these neoliberal thinkers established or revived a sort of a political argument for markets and for capitalism as realms of freedom, liberty, mutually beneficial voluntary relations that contrasted with what they depicted as the despotism and the totalitarianism and the violence of political realms. And I think that this argument is obviously not one which was original to the neoliberal thinkers. And I look at how in my view, they take up a, an argument that Albert Hirschman traces in his great um, The Passions and the Interests that he traces to figures like the Baron de Montesquieu about commerce as a source of peace, the so-called du commerce thesis. Um, so I show that neoliberal thinkers took up this kind of argument and way of thinking about markets at a time when the idea that markets were sources of uh, peaceful, voluntary, mutually beneficial action was an extremely marginal position. But I show that they really promoted this idea and that it helped to influence the way that many human rights advocates talked about civil society as a realm of sort of free and voluntary action that contrasted with the violence of politics in the state. So that's one example of the kinds of linkages and disseminations of ideas that I'm trying to trace in the book. Mm -hmm. And, and you talk about in, in the beginning of the book how what you're about to, to tell us, a, a lot of the kind of touchstones that you've just laid out are a sort of parallel history to the one that we're maybe more familiar with um, 
that kind of centers on the 1970s as this turning point for the relationship between uh, the welfare state and the market, uh, between uh, certain kinds of third world formations and uh, the the kind of international world order that we currently have, um, a, a relationships between a number of these things. Um, you've you've said a little bit about it already, but if you if you wouldn't mind just kind of telling us how this parallel history is significantly different um, from from the one that sort of exists in both the historiography and maybe a popular understanding of the 70s as this turning point. Mm, sure. Well, I think one of the things that um, really struck me is the way in which the story of the rise of human rights and the story of the rise of neoliberalism tended to be told in isolation from each other. Or if scholars noted the historical parallels between them, they tended to talk about sort of coincidences or um, to relate them in sort of in ways that were not particularly um, that hadn't really developed how we could understand the connections between these two things that seemed to happen simultaneously. And if you take the human rights scholarship, I think that the focus on the 1970s has been a really important uh, focus. And I think if you take a book like Samuel Moyne's Last Utopia, which I think is a fantastic book and was very influential for me, um, which talks about how human rights emerged in the 1970s, primarily because other grander utopias, namely anti colonialism and communism failed. So there was this sort of space into which uh, human rights became, in his terms, the last utopia. Um, but there's a moment in that book where Moyne sort of talks about how human rights emerged in the 70s in its distinctive NGO constraining the state form as if from nowhere. And to me, it was very striking that actually the kinds of ideas that Moyne was tracing, which I agree are distinct from an older rights of man tradition, actually had a much, much longer lineage in neoliberal thought. So it seemed to me that rather than just emerging as if from nowhere in the 1970s, we could trace the development of these ideas back over decades if we knew where to look. And it seemed to me that where to look was at a group of self-affirmed liberals who went about trying to revive and to transform liberalism in the wake of World War II. Um, and that if we looked at them and their development, we actually saw that a language of human rights as ways to protect a private domain, as ways to constrain politics and particularly mass politics, and as ways to limit the power of the state in certain forms, to limit its power to intervene into economic life for the purpose of greater equality, was very clearly part of a neoliberal heritage. And that similarly, the kinds of uses of state violence that many human rights NGOs have been quite comfortable with in order to intervene in the name of transforming societies and defending human rights was also a form of violence that neoliberal thinkers were very comfortable with. So they weren't anti-statist anti in any simple sense. They were uh, against state interventions which were non-conducive with the market in their terms, but they were very much in favour of state interventions in order to support and prop up competitive market relations internationally, and especially in the context of decolonization. Mm -hmm. And so how, 
how then does something like, you know, the market or the economy as maybe a concept or an object for the thinkers you're looking at, but also as if we can for a second, you know, hold them apart, the the kind of so-called real economy, the so-called real market, which is to say the phenomena or transformations, the historical transformations that these people are observing, how do those things feature as as a as an object in your story then kind of the the discourse and the thinking and the conceptualization of the market and the economy and then the sort of social and political and historical transformations that are you know occurring throughout the 20th century um in, in, with increasing consequences for something like economic theory or or the ways in which theorists then in very very material ways like you laid out affect the everyday lives of people who live under these governments, under these regimes. Mm. Um, yeah, thanks. Look, it's interesting. I mean, you talked about the market and the economy, and perhaps one of the things that was very um, distinctive when I started researching the neoliberals is how much they want to hold those two things, which we're used to thinking of as sort of similar, the same thing, separate. So to look at Hayek again, he has an essay about the confusion of language in political thought, where he says there's this great confusion because we tend to use the term economy to apply to two different things, one of which is a sort of individual economy, an economy of a household or an organisation, the other of which is the sort of the extended market order, which we also tend to call the economy. And for Hayek and for many of the early neoliberals, they were really resistant to this second use of the term economy because they went back to the sort of the older um, Greek roots of economy in oikonomia or the management of a household. And they argued that talking in terms of an economy licensed the idea that the economy was an organisation that had members and that had a single set of ends and a sort of duty to extend forms of solidarity to all of its members. So this was the conception that they saw reflected in demands for social and economic rights, in demands for economic equality, in demands for economic welfare. They said all of this presupposes the idea that the economy is like a household and that the government has a duty to manage that household in the interests of all its members. So they really wanted to actually reject this argument. They really positioned themselves against this thing called the economy in the course of the mid-20th century. And instead, they advanced an idea of the market, the competitive market in particular, conceived as an extended division of labour that had no ends but was a space in which individuals could pursue their own ends and their, the ends of their families. And this conception of the market was something that was not natural. As I mentioned earlier, they broke with the idea of laissez-faire and they believed that to establish competitive markets required widespread state action, including action to ensure rights of participants in those markets. And while it's sort of obvious many, many forms of liberalism have relied on the idea that market participants require property rights, that contracts must be enforced, etc. The neoliberals went much further than that. For them, there was a much more extensive sort of range of um, 
rights that they saw as necessary to create the sort of liberal competitive societies uh, governed by the morals of the market in which a competitive market order could function. And in particular, they were interested in securing the rights of traders and investors to be free from the harassment of the political process in post-colonial societies in particular. So that's one of the real things that I look at. I think we see many of these kinds of arguments that were institutionalised in organisations like the World Trade Organisation or the GATT that were promoted by the international financial institutions, um, the ways in which organisations like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund required and insisted on very extreme forms of social transformation and transformation of economic life as a condition of loans. I think we see a whole range of ways in which these kind of conceptions of what a competitive market required um, were institutionalised. It's notable that even today in the context of the COVID-19 crisis, we had the head of the World Bank just a week or so ago saying that the World Bank was there to provide help to the the poorest countries in the world, but that in order to give confidence and to ensure that there would be a quick recovery in the wake of the crisis, it was necessary that they engaged in extensive processes of restructuring, including getting rid of regulatory barriers, subsidies, etc. So we see this same tune even today in the context of this crisis of the requirement to completely restructure economies and societies including, for instance, by removing subsidies on basic goods and foods in order to qualify for loans. So that's sort of one example of the way that these ideas were disseminated. But I think that the role of human rights and ideas of individual freedom in enabling these kind of transformations was also a really significant part of this story. Mm -hmm. And if that's the trajectory um, of, of the story that you're telling, and especially because of the kind of immense political stakes of the conclusions that you draw, which which we'll come to in a moment. Um, I wonder how you hope uh, we might teach this book, uh, especially because uh, these uh, some of these thinkers, like I said, some of these episodes are sort of um, kind of essential moments in talking about kind of the the arc of the 20th century or talking about economic thought or talking about um, the rise of the welfare state. But you have, as you just laid out for us, kind of a very different reorientation in both chronology and emphasis here. Um, so how how do you hope that people will go about teaching teaching this book or teaching these questions moving forward? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I think, I mean, I hope that it will be taught by those who are interested in understanding the history of human rights, obviously. Um, but I also um, hope that it could be used to sort of rethink the way that we think about um, neoliberalism and its relationship to politics and to political thought. So I think that this book could also be taught in political theory courses to rethink an argument about neoliberalism simply as an economic doctrine and look more deeply at the kind of political ideas. Um, I hope that it will change the way that we think about um, some of these transformations of the sort of the period from the 40s to the 80s and um, rethink the role that um, 
neoliberal thinkers had in a whole series of conflicts and um, struggles over the course of that period that helped to shape the world that we live in today. Um, I don't think in any way that these figures sort of uh, unilaterally created our world, but I think that they were major players in a whole series of struggles over state welfare, over post-colonial economic orders, also obviously over the status of, you know, countries like Chile, and that's a story that's very much still playing out today as we have, you know, huge protests there against the constitutional order that the figures that I look at in the book were really central to the establishment of. So I think that it could potentially be taught in a range of sort of histories of both political economy and human rights, as well as sort of political theory courses to think um, differently about the history of liberalism and the, the sort of the, the theories of human rights that we work with today. Mm-hmm. And how I, you, you mentioned one one way um, when you brought up the World Bank, um, but how how were some of the conclusions that you come to in your book, some of the I think very important tools that you give us, how can they help maybe help us understand and act right now in the midst of the crisis that we're dealing with, especially because a lot of the dynamics that you lay out are coming out very, very forcefully in the ways in which governments, NGOs, entities like the World Bank, um, as well as just kind of conversations among individuals are are playing out about the relationship between what um, states owe to one another, what states owe to their people, um, what is a right and what is, you know, merely the privilege of the rich to, you know, in an extreme case, the privilege to live a little bit longer or to have access to the care that would enable you to live rather than die. You know, these are really the kind mm. of terms in which a public conversation is happening right now, despite the fact that we know, obviously, that these dynamics have been in place for a very long time. Um, mm. how, how might the conclusions that you draw kind of help us think about what's going on right now? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting question. And obviously, I've been thinking about this, but things are very much in flux. So I think on the one hand, it's really it's too early to know what will become of either neoliberalism or human rights in the wake of this pandemic, assuming there is a wake of all of this. Um, I think, though, that we're seeing a number of developments that are very interesting, one of which is obviously the extraordinary transformations in certain states of welfare systems where we're seeing, for instance, a conservative government in the UK guaranteeing 80% of people's wages. Um, Here in Australia, we have a liberal conservative government that has just introduced um, extraordinary welfare payments, doubling the rate of welfare for the unemployed while also introducing a massive JobKeeper payment that's aimed at keeping people in employment with government subsidies. So these are extraordinary things that are quite at odds with many of the neoliberal perspectives I look at. On the other hand, I think that one of the things, as you say, that this crisis is revealing extremely starkly is the consequences of decades of neoliberal restructuring and particularly arguments against the idea that people have rights to things like healthcare. And we're really seeing that the starkness of what it means to argue that health is not a human right, that this is something that individuals should purchase on the market. So I think that many of the shortcomings of neoliberal societies are becoming starkly clear today. I've also been struck by the way that arguments about 
the sort of the magic of the market, the way that the price system is supposed to coordinate both the distribution of goods and social action are really losing a lot of their sheen today. So we're seeing that many people associated with the sort of the legacy of the thinkers I look at most directly, say the Ludwig von Mises web, are still making arguments about how really what we need is price rises of whether it's of ventilators or hand sanitizer to ensure that there will be a profit motive for more production. Um, that the worst possible thing we can do is have price restrictions on these basic uh, materials. But I think that that argument today is extremely unpopular. The kind of um, reactions to price gouging, particularly when it comes to things which medical professionals desperately need for their own health and safety if they're going to be treating people who are suffering from uh, the coronavirus, I think the argument that the market should just allow these things to go to whoever can afford to pay looks very, um, today to people, simply does not look like the right way we should be doing things. So it seems to me that suddenly a neoliberal position, which has been dominant for decades, is becoming quite marginal and that those who make the argument about just allowing people to speculate on surgical masks look very much like the sort of um, grain speculators that E.P. Thompson talks about in the context of the moral economy that preceded the rise of uh, free market economics, they, that there's a moral economy today which is suggesting that speculating on surgical masks and ventilators is deeply problematic. So I think that that's a really interesting shift that we're seeing. I think it's also very interesting looking at uh, human rights and humanitarian NGOs and how they're dealing with it. Interestingly, Medicine Sans Frontieres, since the period that I looked at in the book, has changed quite um, decisively in many ways for you know, at least a decade or so influential figures associated with Medicine Sans Frontieres have become much more sceptical of the human rights agenda. Um, and in the current context, it's very interesting that what they're talking about is the deep inequalities that are determining people's access to life-saving medical supplies. They're talking about the role of big pharma in dictating which drugs get produced and which don't, the impact of existing wars in creating precarity and vulnerability. Um, so we're seeing a real shift there where senior medicine on frontier figures today are arguing that sort of deep economic inequalities today are the biggest barrier to our collective health and well-being. On the other hand, we see organisations like um, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, which still are very much focused on the sort of um, restrictions on civil rights that are taking place today. Um, now, of course, there are many contexts in which there are um, states that are really using this context in order to exercise forms of repression that they have an interest in exercising regardless of this pandemic. Um, but I also think some of the the abstraction of the claims that are being made by these NGOs. For instance, I recently, in the context of this, got an email from Human Rights Watch um, reassuring or reminding that um, the human rights conventions guarantee to everyone the highest attainable standard of health. And this just seemed to me absurd when what has become clear is that what is attainable in this context is very much determined by wealth. 
And I think that that's the real sore point and that's the point that human rights NGOs have not been resourced or equipped or have not intended to contest the real dominance of private power and the way that um, that economic life and economic inequalities distribute life chances in ways that really shape how well people are able to access basic life-saving medicines, for example, is a real sort of a limit of much existing human rights politics. Mm -hmm. You've you've given us a lot to think about, I think, and it's been especially helpful to talk about um, especially right now, the, the ways in which these things are so mutable, but also um, come together in very precise historical moments because they serve certain sets of interests. And, and, and you've laid that out really beautifully, I think, for us. Um, I'm afraid on that we're going to have to, to wrap up. But before we do, I just wanted to thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us about this, especially uh, in this very difficult moment for, for everyone. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much.